It's easy to talk about the easy stuff. Work. Sports. But sometimes, we need to talk about the hard stuff. The difficult questions that linger in our minds, but we're afraid to ask. Is there truly a way to know right from wrong? Do advances in science undermine the authority of the Bible? Does God have anything to say about my depression? Does God hate me because I'm gay? Because I'm transgender? Is it just lights out when we die? Or is there something more? For too long, the church has avoided difficult conversations. Because, well, they're difficult. We're ready to change that. The afterlife, mental health, evolution, sexuality. This is a conversation about what God really has to say about these topics. Buckle up. This might get awkward. Well, we are in week three of our series, This Might Get Awkward, as I mentioned before. And today, um, Pastor Lucas is out of town, and so I have the, um, the privilege of introducing a good friend of mine, um, Jared Ayers, who's going to be sharing uh, the word with us today, was actually my youth pastor in grade 11 and grade 12. I was his intern, and um, probably the reason I'm in ministry today, Jared. So um, Jared is a church planner and a pastor in, in Philadelphia. Uh, it was him and his wife, Monica, are here with us today. Can you welcome them, please? Hey. Uh I am really excited to be with you today. Uh, I, uh, uh, as Andy said, my name is Jared, and my wife Monica and I have been here for the weekend. Uh, I will say to my embarrassment, I have never been to Canada before. Prior to this weekend, my knowledge of your fair country was limited to hockey and Labatt Blue and Nickelback. Uh, but... We have loved being in Toronto this weekend. It's been a thrill. Uh, Toronto is a city that's felt, yeah. Um, Toronto is a city that has felt kind of like our own city, Philadelphia, but a lot cleaner and a lot nicer. So it's been amazing. Uh, but we have mostly been thrilled to be here because of Andy and his wife, Michelle. Uh, as Andy mentioned, uh, we have, my wife Monica and I have known Andy since he was in the 11th grade, which means first that we have so many amazing old pictures of him that we really should have thought to bring with us. Uh, but second, that for a long, long time, we've, uh, we've looked at him and just known that God's hand was on this guy's life. And so it's been a privilege uh, to, to have first uh, been Andy's pastor and then much, for a much longer time uh, to be privileged to count Andy and then his wife, Michelle, as just dear friends. And so uh, we've, been, uh, we've been really thrilled to, to be here and worship together with all of you this weekend. Uh, you don't need me to tell you this, but you are all so, so lucky to have them. Uh, and uh, it's been a joy to listen to them talk about how uh, this community has embraced them. So, uh, so it's wonderful to be able to be here and meet all of you in person. Um, your pastor, Lucas, uh, told me as we were arranging things for today that you were going to be beginning a series this fall on lots of controversial and awkward things. And he asked me, for my part, to talk about money and power, and then he left town. So, get pumped, everybody. 
I am really excited for this morning. You may or may not be. So uh, I think given that, it'd be really appropriate for us to take just a minute to pray together if you would. So why don't you pray with me? Almighty God, you know that for all of us, as we enter into this time, as we're about to reflect on these ancient words together, we do so in one way as people who are very different. As we come this morning, we come from lots of different places, spiritually, intellectually, relationally, socially, emotionally. Some of us arrive this morning full of faith, and some of us arrive this morning, to be frank, full of questions. Some of us arrive this morning joyful. Some of us arrive this morning carrying deep sorrow or anger that we are desperately trying to keep under the waterline of our lives or debilitating anxiety. And so we pray from all the different places that we arrived this morning that as we listen to the words of your son Jesus now, we would hear you addressing us. So God, make us hungry to learn now what your love makes you so ardent to teach. Through Christ. Amen. The scripture reading this morning that we'll be reflecting on comes to us from the gospel according to Luke in Luke chapter 18. And so I want to invite you to listen now with open ears to the word of God from Luke 18. A certain ruler said to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He replied, I have kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, there is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with mortals is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Friends, this is God's word. In the year 1886, the great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy penned a haunting piece of short fiction in which he introduces us to a man named Pacom, 
Pakom is a Russian peasant who lives in a small village who is desperately poor and longs with every fiber of his being for some land to call his own. One night in his kitchen, he's talking to his wife, and he laments to her that they don't have any land of their own. And he says to her, give me enough land, and I would fear no one in life, not even the devil himself. Now, as happens sometimes, the devil was actually in their kitchen there that night and overheard this. And so the devil begins to slyly arrange some land-buying opportunities for Pacom in increasing size and scale. Pacom discovers that there's an elderly woman in the neighboring village who's selling off her small estate, and he's able to scrape enough, scrape enough together enough capital to, to get a hold of the land. But then he discovers that peasants keep trespassing on his land, and he thinks to himself, if I just had some more land, then nobody would trespass on it, and then, then I'd have enough. He discovers that in the next village down the way, there's an even larger plot of land available. So he arranges to be able to go and purchase this plot of land. And as his life unfolds, he buys ever larger quantities of land, but always wonders to himself, if I just had some more land, then I'd have enough, if I just had some more. Until one day, there is a traveler making his way through his village when Pacom has now become a wealthy landowner. And as this traveler is making his way through town, he tells Pacom about a distant people group that live in a faraway village named the Bashkirs. Uh, the Bashkirs uh, are possessed of large, vast tracts of land. And this traveler tells uh, tells Pacom in no uncertain terms that these people are dumb as sheep. And so Pacom leaves his family, he brings a workman with him, and he makes his way to the distant country where the Bishkirs live. He befriends this native tribe, uh, and he barters with the elder in their community to be able to purchase much of their land. And this is the deal that they strike him. They tell him that for just a thousand rubles, he can have as much land as he can circuit in one day. But if he's not home by sunset, if he's not finished making his circuit and made his way back to the elder in the community by sunset, he would forfeit all the land and the purchase price. That question that nags at Pacom and Tolstoy's story, what if I just had some more? If I had some more, then I would have enough. This is the same question that nags the figure that Jesus interacts with in Luke chapter 18. And truth be told, it's the same question that nags at you and I here and now. Uh, the story that we heard together a moment ago, uh, which you can find in Luke 18, verses 18 to 30, which Christians often nickname uh, the story of the rich young ruler, is a story of someone who's, for whom that question winds up being their undoing. Uh, the church community often nicknames that story the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. Uh, we learn from, from Luke's version of this story that this person is quite wealthy. Uh, the, other, uh, the other versions of Jesus' life as they tell this story, they also fill in the detail that this person is young. And so as we listen to this young man interact with Jesus, uh, we are listening in on somebody who is financially and socially and morally wealthy. He's somebody who's kept Jewish commandments. 
He's somebody who's very rich at a young age. Uh, he's somebody who's called, uh, who's called a ruler, which would have meant that he's from the nobility class of his own society. Uh, and he is even someone who admits that there is a missing dimension in his life to, well, to boot. This is someone who in every possible way has everything. He has money, influence, power, prestige. But the problem underneath the waterline of this man's life is his acquisitiveness. In his view, he has acquired money, he has acquired morality, and he shows up to Jesus simply asking how he can acquire God as well. I want to pause and say as an aside that I know perhaps, especially for those of you for whom uh, you, you had a friend drag you here to church this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you've been away from church for, for a long time, I know internally there's likely a good chance that right now you are doing an internal eye roll. As you hear the story, as you, as you, as you heard introduce what we'll be talking about today, internally right now you're saying, here we go again. Here goes the church after my money again. And I want to say to you, as a Christian minister, that in all likelihood, uh, that concern is really valid. You know, the Christian church has often enough done fishy things with people's money. And I want you to hear a Christian minister acknowledge that to you. But I also would say, that how you relate to whatever quantity of influence, uh, social power, and resources you have, uh, that is a central and inescapable part of your life. I also want you to see that the, script, the Christian scriptures don't actually say that money is evil. Uh, the Christian scriptures say that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, but the scriptures never anywhere say that having money in and of itself is a bad thing. Uh, Christians don't believe that money is evil. But they also know that money and power are not neutral either. Money and power have profound influence over us. The two of them are like a habit-forming substance in our lives. And Christians acknowledge what all of us know in experience to be true. That the human heart has a kind of inward gravitational pull toward acquiring more and more and more. The antique name for, uh, for what we now call greed in the English language is the word avarice. Uh, it actually comes from the Latin word avare. And I think that that's a, an especially illuminating word because that, that Latin word avare, it actually literally means to crave. We have this craving inside of us for more and more and more. More power, more money, a little bit more. We acquire and acquire and acquire. And over time as we do, what we acquire acquires us. Jesus shows uh, this young professional that reality in the deft diagnosis that he offers him. 
Now, if you have the passage in front of you, if you look with me at verses 19 and 20, as the, uh, as the young professional says to Jesus, what do I need to do to acquire God, good teacher? Jesus responds uh, with, with modesty. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And then he says to him, you know the commandments. And he rattles some of them off. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus is doing here. Uh, if, if you'd like, later on today, I want you to cross-check the commandments that Jesus quotes to this young man here with the list of ten commandments that you can find in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. If you do that, what you'll realize is that Jesus here quotes this guy, the Ten Commandments, but he omits the first four, all of the ones about worshiping God instead of anything else, and he omits the last commandment about coveting. Jesus, in other words, is slyly showing this guy that he has an acquiring addiction that he has not come to terms with yet. You see, the scriptures always link together greed and idolatry. In the book of Colossians, chapter 3, as Paul, who's an early Christian leader who wrote several of the books in the New Testament, is writing to a young church community trying to work out what it means to follow Jesus together, he tells them, put to death greed, and then he adds, which is idolatry. In other words, uh, greed is simply worshiping that craving instead of building our lives on our creator. As Andy told you, I live in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is a, is a historic city in its own right, and where we live in downtown Philadelphia, we're actually just a short walk from the very first bank built in the, in the United States, and I think perhaps in North America. Uh, I've toured this facility several times, and one time as I walked through this historic, what's now just a monument, I was struck as I was, I was taking a tour through the building to learn that when that, when that uh, facility was built in 1791, it was actually deeply controversial, and here's why. The architect who designed and built the first bank of the United States built it to resemble a church sanctuary, a house of worship. In other words, he knew what you and I are often not so honest with ourselves about. What we have, or what we want to have, is oftentimes our real house of worship. And so, Jesus smokes this guy out. As soon as Jesus hears him say, well, I've already done all that stuff, he says, well, just one more thing. Give everything away. Call your broker, liquidate your assets, donate everything to the poor, and then come on. And when that man hears that, his face falls, he turns his back, and he shuffles away. He keeps his stuff, but he loses his life. This is actually, in the Gospels, the only time 
that someone explicitly refuses to become Jesus' disciple. And it's over his addiction to acquiring. Now, as the bystanders watch this interaction unfold, they begin to whisper in alarm, we'll be saved. And Jesus, with a gravity in his voice, meets the man's gaze. And as another version of this story tells us, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, how hard it is when you've got wealth to enter into life with God. It's hard. Now, why is it so hard? I think that both in that day and age and in our day and age, our addiction to acquiring, to acquiring more power, to acquiring more influence, to acquiring more money, it's hard for us to self-diagnose. I can say this with a measure of experience now. I've been a Christian pastor now for some 15 or 16 years, and over that course of time working with, with students and teenagers and young adults in a couple of different churches, and now pastoring a church full of people who are barely Christians in a major city center, uh, I have sat with people as they've confessed all sorts of various and sundry kinds of brokenness in their life. Uh, it's oftentimes sad, sometimes painful, and frequently also sort of humorous. But of all of the things that anybody has ever sat down with me and said, you'll never believe what I did. I know it's going to be hard for you to realize what I'm struggling with, but I have never one time had somebody make an appointment with me and say, Pastor, I need help. I'm greedy. I'm greedy. Help me. What can I do? I've had people confess all kinds of addictions, uh, all kinds of things that they've done that have been illegal, uh, deeply painful to themselves or others, or just downright dumb. But never one time have I ever had somebody sit down with me and say, please help me, I am addicted to what I want in life. Uh, there's, a, there's a Harvard economist named Michael Sandel who a few years ago wrote a compelling and illuminating book called What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets. And in his study, he analyzes how market values, monetary value and profit, uh, have come to trump every other value in every sphere of modern Western society. Uh, in other words, profit uh, has come to dictate how we do all the various spheres of human life. Uh, not, only, not only business, but politics, education, and family life. Now, I know in my own country, we never have a hard time with, with naked desire for profit informing how we do public life or politics or caring for people or anything like that. But maybe that happens in Canada. I don't know. I don't live here. You know, additionally, uh, we live in a cultural moment in which we have artificial, manufactured desire for more packaged and delivered to us all the time. And maybe you do this with what I do this with, with this thing. You know, I have one of these, and it works fine. It calls people when I need it to call people. But then, there will be a commercial for a new one of these. It might be a half inch bigger. It might be a quarter inch skinnier. The screen might be a little bigger. It might work an eighth of a second faster. And I'll watch a commercial for that, and then I'll catch myself saying, 
how did I even use the phone that I had? How did I even get by with one of those before? I need this new one. How could I live without it? You know, maybe, maybe you, as you watch this interchange between Jesus and this ancient young professional unfold, maybe you, maybe you can begin to reflect on, on how it is that you perhaps also have a bit of an acquiring addiction yourself. Jesus' word to this man undoes him. And for us, as followers of Jesus, for those of us that are Christians, we struggle as we seek to bring Jesus' words and the invitation here into our own lives. If you're like me, you wonder as you read this story, what do I do with this? Is, is everybody called to, to sacrifice all their stuff and be poor and follow Jesus? Like, what, what am I supposed to do as I hear Jesus say this? I think it's instructive to realize that this is actually the only time in the Gospels that Jesus asks someone to leave all of their things and follow him, to give away all their resources and to become his disciple. In other words, what Jesus is after here is not this guy's portfolio, but his heart. He's trying to show him that he doesn't have an ethics problem. He has a worship problem. He is trying to root out the degrading false God that this young man bows the knee to. We see God doing this, in fact, through the whole narrative of Holy Scripture. And so in the Hebrew scriptures, in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abram, later to become Abraham, who's someone from a large and prosperous family and a familiar environment. And God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your family and your whole known future and follow me, and I am not even going to tell you where we're going. Jesus will say to Peter, who pipes up towards the end of the scripture reading that we heard together, I want you to leave your family business and come with me. In the book of John, Jesus will say to a woman caught in adultery, after he pronounces scandalous forgiveness, he will say also, I want you to leave your shallow search for love in all the wrong places. And to this guy here, Jesus will say, I want you to be willing to leave your portfolio. In other words, it is our tendency to settle for worshiping all kinds of other things and people. And Jesus knows that this degrades and destroys us, and he loves us too much to leave us alone in that. So Jesus looks at us, loves us, and wants to emancipate us from our acquiring addiction. Jesus knows that on our own, Heeding that call is impossible for us. He hears the gasps around him as the voices say, if that guy's not in, how are we going to be in? And Jesus says, for mortals, this is impossible. He knows that heeding his call is about as possible for us as a Rolls Royce driving through a revolving door. Uh, Augustine of Hippos, an ancient Christian thinker and leader, in, uh, in, in a sermon he preached about this passage, he compares this man giving all of his accumulated wealth away to being like cutting off one of his own lives, limbs. But this is the good news. 
Almighty God loves to meet us when we are absolutely at the end of ourselves. Jesus says, for mortals, this is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. Jesus asserts unflinchingly here that God specializes in the impossible. And as we watch the story of Jesus unfold, we see that it is God's generosity that counteracts and heals us from our craving for more. You see, when you watch the story of Jesus unfold here in the book of Luke, you will come to realize that there is actually not just one rich young ruler here, but two. This story is situated in a long section in the last third of the book of Luke called the travel narrative. And in it, uh, we follow Jesus as we read the book of Luke as he makes a slow and deliberate journey towards suffering, death, and resurrection. In other words, Jesus, as we follow him here, is on a journey to freely give not just his things, but his own self away on behalf of this man, you and I, and the entire world. There's an early Christian song in the book of, the book of Philippians chapter 2 uh, that says that, uh, that Jesus, who we see here, was in the very form of God. Jesus wasn't just very rich. Jesus owned everything. But he didn't think the fringe benefits of deity worthy of being exploited. So he freely emptied himself and took the form of a servant and lowered himself into human life and then into suffering and then into death. That song sings to us the good news that it is because Jesus gives everything away that he now sits on the throne of the universe. You see, friends, the center of a Christian person and a Christian community's life is a cosmic act of infinite, extravagant, and costly generosity. That is the center of your life if you're a follower of Jesus. And it is that story alone. The story of Almighty God giving away not just some of his stuff, but himself for you. That will liberate you from the black hole of craving for more and more and more. You see, the story that Pacom and Tolstoy's story and this rich young ruler two millennia ago and you and I, half a world and 2,000 years later, here live by is this. The way to accrue significance in life is to clutch and gather for more and more power. The way to become truly wealthy in life is to hoard more and more and more for yourself. But the Christian story turns all of that on its head. The gospel story says the real way to become somebody of significance is actually to spend yourself on behalf of others. It's actually to lower yourself and put others' interests ahead of yourself. It tells us a story about Almighty God becoming a servant, suffering unjustly, dying sacrificially. The story that we live by says gather more and more and more for yourself. 
Uh, Jesus shows us the way that you become truly wealthy is to give more and more and more away, is to use whatever it is that you have to bless other people. Uh, It's only that story that will liberate us, emancipate us from our addiction to acquiring more and more and more. I want to invite you to two, two practices that the Christian community takes up uh, from, from this story uh, to get that good news, the story of God's generosity to us in Jesus, uh, into, our, into our bones and our bloodstream and our bank accounts. Here they are. First, I want to invite you to the practice of gratitude. To the practice of gratitude. Now, I call gratitude a practice in a really intentional way. In the moment that we live in, we're, we're, often used to, uh, we're often used to thinking of gratitude as a mood, as an emoji. But for Christians, gratitude is a practice. It is the determination to see every breath we have, every day we have, as a gratuitous gift from God. Everything that's good and beautiful and lovely about the life that you have. And chiefly above all those things, uh, the good news that you have Jesus is a gratuitous gift of extravagant generosity from God. So I want to invite you to, to take up the practice of gratitude. And what would it look like for you this week uh, to take a few moments uh, simply to thank God for the little things and the large things uh, that are the gifts that he's given you and deliberately to not ask for anything, to not ask for more than anything. As you do that over time, it will train your heart to live in a posture of gratitude towards your creator and not to be addicted to just a little bit more. So gratitude. And second, the practice of generosity. People who follow the crucified and risen Lord Jesus are people who practice generosity as a way of life. And so someone who's a follower of Jesus in the company that she runs, uh, she'll seek to, to not simply impress the people around her, but to serve the people around her. On the team that you work with at work, uh, you'll use your influence in your office, not merely to step on the backs of your coworkers to make your way up the ladder, but to serve your coworkers and seek their flourishing. Uh, you'll be generous with your time. If you're a follower of Jesus and you bear the image of God's generous grace in Christ, you'll be somebody who's a, who allows yourself to be interrupted by your neighbors, who learns to care about them, even like the annoying ones. You'll be generous with, uh, with the things that you're good at, with your passions, with your expertise. And, yes, you'll be generous with your money. Now, I don't want to spoil the surprise for all of you, but in a couple of minutes, we're going to take an offering. And... I want you to know that we do that, and the Christian church around the world does that, not just like for us, but for you. In other words, when uh, when we take an offering, uh, you you do it in in all kinds of high-tech ways here, and we do some of that as my church as well, but we do it in worship because this is a worship practice. 
we practice giving to and through this community, to and through the community that I'm, that I'm a part of in Philadelphia and with the church around the world, not just like so that we can keep the lights on and so we can make sure Andy forever has cool guitar pedals and all those kinds of things, but we do it for you. We do it so that your heart can be trained to not be addicted to what you have. So that you can get into your bones, into your bank account, the gospel generosity of God. In Tolstoy's story about Pakom, on the appointed day after he meets the Bashkirs and barters with their elder, he begins his day-long loop around their land in order to gather as much of it for himself as he can. But each time he's about to make a turn back towards where he needs to meet the elder in order to secure the deal, he sees one more beautiful field, one more shimmering stream, one more noble step in the valley, and he keeps going and going and going. Until soon enough, his legs are beginning to get tired, and the sun is beginning to sink toward the horizon. I want you to watch what happens. Pacom looked at the sun. It had reached the earth now. Half of its great disk had dipped below the horizon. With all the strength he had left, Pacom lurched forward with his full weight, hardly able to move his legs quickly enough to stop himself from falling. He reached the hill, and everything suddenly became dark. He looked around and saw that the sun had set. Pacom groaned. All that effort has been in vain, he thought. He wanted to stop when he heard the Bashkirs still cheering him on, and he realized that from where he was at the bottom of the hill, the sun had apparently set, but not for those at the top. Pacom took a deep breath and rushed up the hill, which was still bathed in sunlight. But his legs give way, he fell forward, and he managed to reach where the elder was with his hand. Oh, well done, exclaimed the elder. That's a lot of land you've earned for yourself. Pacom's workman ran up and tried to lift his master, but blood flowed from his mouth. Pacom was dead. The Bashkirs clicked their tongues sympathetically. Pacom's workman picked up the spade and dug a grave for his master, six feet from head to heel, which was exactly the right length, and buried him. Tolstoy titled that short story, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And he had Pacom's servant answer that question with a six-foot pine box. That story, this story, and our lives, they show us that a life obsessed with acquiring will always wear us out and will always wind up doing us in. On the other hand, Right after narrating the tragedy of the rich young ruler, Luke tells another story about another man that Jesus meets. Jesus, just after this, continues his journey and meets a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is another wealthy man, and he's somebody who's actually gotten all of his power, the power he's accrued for himself with the empire of the day, and all of his money by stepping on the backs of the people in his own community. But... Zacchaeus experiences Jesus' generous, scandalous grace. And when he does, spontaneously, he says to Jesus and to the whole town, I am going to make right every wrong that I've done with the power that I have. 
and I'm going to liquidate half my assets right now, call my broker, and give all of it away to the poorest people in this town. Think of that. Here's one person on the one hand saying, how much do I have to give? And another person on the other saying, how much do I get to give? What is the difference between those two? The difference is, one of them actually experienced the cosmic generosity of Jesus Christ, the true rich young ruler. I pray that you do too. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I'm gonna close in prayer now and I'm gonna offer you a, uh, a prayer that we'll pray together. It's from a Christian spiritual writer named Henry Nowen. Uh, he, uh, he wrote a prayer about this tendency for us to hold on to the things that we have, and he uses the image of a clenched fist. And so I'm going to invite you to bow with me, and simply, if you're, if you're willing and able as you do so, uh, to simply clench a fist, and as we pray this prayer together, to be willing to simply open it up, and then we'll sing to close. Let's pray. Dear God, I am so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and discover that I am not what I own, but what you want to give me. And what you want to give me is love, unconditional and everlasting love. Amen.